between episode 23, what I said at the Rare Disease Roundtable last week. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Last week, I was invited to attend and present at a rare disease roundtable hosted by Health Catalyst and McDermott, Will and Emery in Boston. A colleague from Aventria Health Group and I were there to talk about ways to enlist stakeholder collaboration throughout the rare disease patient journey. To start off my part of the rare disease conversation, I showed a slide that actually I co-opted from a presentation I'd seen a guy from Google make about the typical digital consumer journey, except I applied it to a typical rare disease patient journey. On one side of the slide, it showed the patient journey in theory that we all like to talk about, and it is a beautifully straight line, you know? Patient presents at care setting, patient gets diagnosed, patient gets put on the right therapy, patient is adherent. The other side of the slide I labeled meanwhile in real life. And on that side of the slide, the beautifully straight line became a gigantic magic marker like hairball scribble because basically the patient presents at the care setting and yeah, the patient sees on average 7.3 physicians before he or she is diagnosed, sometimes after several years, sometimes after decades. And then there's the question of ensuring that the patient is then, after diagnosis, put on the latest evidence-based treatment for that disease. It's not like most providers have Google alerts set up in case anything changes for any condition that their hundreds or maybe thousands of patients might suffer from, especially generalists. So a lot of the burden to stay on top of clinical developments falls on patients, whether they are ready or not, otherwise known as extreme variability in patient outcomes. And this is kind of a major problem because there are approximately 7,000 rare diseases that affect 25 to 30 million people in the United States. That's like one out of 10 people, and many of them are children. The bad news is that many of these diseases are life-threatening or life-limiting. The good news is that some of these diseases have cures or at least therapies to manage the condition or reduce symptoms. The bad news is that there are 7,000 diseases. So from the standpoint of any single disease, if a disease can have a standpoint, is trying to raise awareness of the symptoms and of the best treatment modalities that are out there. That's really uphill sledding with so much, I don't want to say noise because it's important, but it's a cacophony of voices. So I know everything I've just said is not a newsflash for any patient or provider or anyone who has had anything to do with rare diseases, but it is the heart of this major problem that requires stakeholder collaboration to solve. One of the reasons why I am so passionate about rare diseases is that I had one. And although my narrative, my story turned out pretty well, it was still pretty harrowing. So just in case you don't have a personal example or family example of how this shakes out, let me give you some context that I can tell you from personal experience. Many years ago, I had an adrenal tumor. It's called Cushing syndrome. And this is, like I said, a long time ago now. But I knew something was wrong. I don't know how much you know about adrenal tumors, but it's like you just drank eight cups of coffee every day, every minute. 
So basically, I was up in the middle of the night, you know, like installing shelving and watching Insomniac with Dave Attell and that show where they had puppies in a cage watching MTV videos. My blood pressure, some liver enzymes and cholesterol were through the roof. And you also get some weird things like bruising. So I go to doctor after doctor and doctor after doctor told me things ranging from, oh, this is what happens when you turn 30 and figure out that life can be stressful to treating the symptoms and never wondering why a not obese 30-year-old would have blood pressure of like 200 plus for systolic to helpfully hypothesizing that the bruises all over my legs and arms were due to, oh, maybe you get up in the middle of the night and don't realize that you banged into the side of the bed, irrespective of the fact that I hadn't slept for three years, notwithstanding. Anyway, long story short, my mother, who has no medical training, diagnosed me. I went to a doctor and told that doctor what tests I wanted to confirm the diagnosis, and then I had to fight to get them. The good news is that surgery fixed my problem. The bad news is Aventria is working right now doing some work on hepatic encephalopathy. And patients with HE, they show up in the hospital, maybe in the ER, because they've been acting erratically in the community. So they're sent down to a neurologist, uh, they get cognitive assessments, things which are centered on the symptom, which is logical, except hepatic encephalopathy is a liver disorder. The thing with hepatic encephalopathy, which is a, I'm going to say semi-rare condition, is that, you know, the patient might get readmitted three or four or five multiple times before somehow or another, somebody with some GI chops does an assessment and realizes that the patient actually has serious liver condition. But the next issue with HE is that there are A1A treatment guidelines that many patients, even after diagnosis, are not actually on. And this is a really great example of kind of the quintessential issues with rare diseases. It's both the diagnosis as well as what is the best evidence-based medicine for this rare condition. I don't relate these stories because they are unique. I relate these stories because they demonstrate the really hard realities about rare diseases that I really hope that listeners of this podcast never have to experience, but that we as a healthcare system really need to solve for. Here's the thing. Rare disease management takes stakeholder collaborations. Provider organizations, for example, not just academic medical centers or centers of excellence, all provider organizations, community provider organizations need to be able to diagnose rare disease patients or at least know enough to suspect a diagnosis and send the patient to a center of excellence for further help. Payers are also part of this equation, meaning insurance carriers or employer decision makers. These payers need to pay for evidence-based approaches. Payers also have data. Pharma needs to be cognizant of reasonable pricing in line with the value of the product. You know, then we need patient advocacy organizations to be in the mix as well. So here's what we know about this over at Aventria. Let me first talk about provider organizations and the confounding factors that impact the care of rare disease patients. Number one, we know that provider organizations are drowning under a deluge of urgent priorities. What is it now? Like almost a third of the country has some sort of metabolic disorder like diabetes. You know, then there's quality measures and MACRA and HCAPs and EHR upgrades and reimbursement changes and the opioid crisis. 
it's not like provider organizations have a whole lot of time on their hands to get out of that Stephen Covey, those two quadrants that are like pits of urgency. Number two, consider also that diagnosing and treating rare disease patients often requires coordination among several specialties or departments. For example, there's a host of rare diseases that have symptoms in one domain, but are root cause in another. In my case, for example, I got sent to a cardiologist and a hepatologist who each compartmentalized my blood pressure and liver symptoms. Meanwhile, I had an endocrine disorder. So it's often not just a matter of getting one champion in the endocrine or GI or rheumatology department. It's figuring out how to get a bunch of departments and specialties aware and willing to coordinate. And number three, any given provider organization can probably count on one hand the number of patients with any given rare disease who might wander through their doors. That's why they call it rare. And these patients, by the way, they're undiagnosed. They might not even realize they have. So what do these factors mean to a patient advocacy organization or a pharma company with a new drug to treat a rare disease. It means that marching into the decision suite at a provider organization and asking them to exert extensive effort to better diagnose and care for the two patients who they may not even realize they have is a really tough ask, even for the most compassionate executive. It's not that the organization doesn't want to, usually far from it, but it's a matter of opportunity cost. How much choosing to put resources on this effort will hinder other efforts? The pool of resources doesn't get bigger, so doing one thing means that something else isn't going to get done. This is not true for pharma, however. Pharma might be the one stakeholder in rare disease who has the motivation, the critical mass of patients, the disease expertise, and the wherewithal to affect scalable change and helping patients get diagnosed or get evidence-based treatment at provider organizations. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit, and I'm going to talk about it at the IDN or larger provider organization level. But some of these principles can definitely hold true for other size provider organizations and actually other stakeholders throughout the care continuum as well. So let me offer some key calls to action to pharma organizations who have rare disease products or for anyone who is looking to help provider organizations recognize the value of collaborating around the diagnosis and identification of patients with a particular rare disease. And let me just state for the record here that there are some provider organizations and pharma organizations and patient advocacy organizations who are really good at this. So maybe this information is helpful to reinforce what you are already doing, or perhaps this is insight that might help you optimize your current approach. Number one, at the organizational level, it is less about an individual patient, less about one-off prescriptions and more about a population of patients. And it's mostly about how that population of patients impacts the objectives and revenue of the hospital system. Let me put this a different way. At the organizational level, it's about evidence-based medicine. Looking at the evidence, what is the best way to produce patient outcomes? At the individual provider level, individual physician level, prescriber level, it's about medicine-based evidence. In other words, if I prescribe this medicine to this patient, what is the likely outcome? Number two, the effort required to collaborate together to both diagnose and optimally treat rare disease patients has to be less than or equal to the perceived reward. You can't ask someone to expend more in social capital or labor 
or capital capital or their limited time. You can't ask someone to spend more than they think their organization or their patient population is going to get out of it. What that means, or one thing that it means, is that what pharma needs to offer up is more than a molecule. Pharma needs to offer up a customer experience that is simple and elegant for a provider organization to onboard. The question I ask pharma organizations, how are you making it easy for provider organizations to triage patients toward a diagnosis? How are you making it easy for the treatment to be administered? How are you making it easy to manage side effects or patient concerns or adherence to the regimen? I mean, at the end of the day, that's what a PNC committee might be looking for. John Skinner from the Verity Group said as much in last week's podcast. But at a minimum, usage of the molecule will depend on what you do here. Number three, account managers. A whole separate topic. <laughs> Go to aventriahealth.com for blog posts on helping account managers develop the skill set to create collaborative relationships. Number four. I saw a detail aid the other day with a cartoon on the cover that was supposed to be used by institutional pharma reps. Just no. Professional campaigns rarely do double duty as institutional campaigns. One reason is because at the institutional level, you are not looking, once again, as I said before, at one-off prescriptions. You are looking to create a collaboration that systematizes identifying patients and treating them appropriately. Number five. Last, but super importantly, it is best to include clinical trial endpoints in the package insert that reflect institutional and or payer needs. Time to rare disease hospitalization, rehospitalization, readmissions, Medicare quality reporting programs, inpatient quality reportings, ACO, APM, MIPS, etc. All this stuff, if you can get it in the label, decision makers at institutions are just like everybody else. We love data. I know I am just scratching the surface here and I did not get into the model ways that pharma can collaborate around patient identification and appropriate treatment and patient satisfaction. But I also know that podcasts which are six hours long tend to suffer in the popularity department. <laughs> or maybe I'll do a part two one of these days. But at this juncture, for more information on how Aventria, for one, develops collaborative models, you can, as I said before, go to AventriaHealth.com and look at the Perspectives blog posts, or you could visit QC-Health.org and check out the B Corp that I am co-president of and what we're doing there, some of which can definitely be used for collaborations. And if you are contemplating customer experience, listen to last week's show with John Skinner from Verde, as I mentioned before, or the upcoming one with Liliana Petrova. And lastly, lastly, if you work for a provider organization and you see an opportunity to potentially collaborate with a pharmaceutical partner or other stakeholders in the care continuum, definitely reach out, shoot me a note. I definitely have an interest in facilitating those kinds of initiatives and to try to figure out programs that are win-wins for all involved. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is 
automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.